0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger zero
0: G and I feel fine. You might feel up. Okay, I'm out. How does it
1: feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that
2: baby light,
1: there's no doubt about it. Lift off. We have a lift off. Thirty-two minutes past the hour. Lift off on Apollo 11. Swifton, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man.
0: One, five, eight, four, zero. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number four hundred twenty-five of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab Four: The Strike, Fake News. Continuing from the last time, the crew was in the midst of expressing their early difficulties with keeping up with the flight schedule. Gibson continued explaining the problems the third crew encountered. He said, quote, One day, in the midst of all our efforts to get back on schedule, we were working hard and lost in our individual worlds when we heard bang, bang, bang. The attitude control system thrusters for the first time on our flight had fired to help the control moment gyros counteract the gradient of gravity trying to torque the Skylab off target. As we worked inside the huge orbital workstation tank, it sounded like someone was outside working over the tank with an equally huge sledgehammer. Now I know what it would be like to live inside a drum. But with all the problems, there were some happy moments. As with the previous two crews, there was one conversation that the crew of Skylab 4 loved. Gibson explained, quote, Every third day, we had a link to the real world when we each got to talk with our families for 10 to 15 minutes. We really looked forward to those talks. Once, I was describing the awesome beauty of fires that I could see along the African coastline, a result of the farmer's policy of slash burning. I pictured my family hanging with breathless anticipation on every word then I heard Julie, my youngest daughter, say, Mommy, can I go out and play? End quote. The crew took on the responsibility of getting back on track, but was falling behind really their fault? This is how the lead flight director, Neil Hutchinson, saw it. Quote, if you've read anything on the third man flight, you know we, the ground, and I, who was right in the midst of it, were on the wrong side of the work scheduling issue. It was clearly a mistake on my and the control center's part. We expected those three guys to pick up right where the Skylab 2 guys left off. We did not give them one ounce of zero-G time to get used to it. That is to do the task a few times and then schedule it tighter. When they got up there, Bill wasn't feeling very good, which is another thing we now come to accept as well. Yes, it happened, so what? But it was still kind of spooky back then when these guys were getting sick, which was not the fighter pilot image. Oh, what were we going to do? Once the guys got up there, I went through the activation. They did a terrific job. Then on the third day, we sent a flight plan up that was like the day after the last flight plan of Skylab 3, which we didn't get done with the last flight crew. Of course, we had practiced some with them on the ground before they launched. We had simulated between the unmanned missions with each upcoming crew while we were unmanned for a while. Still, it was a serious mistake on the part of the control center because we just expected Bill, Ed, and Jerry to just jump right up on the bandwagon and take off. On their side of the equation, there was not enough communication early on to let us know That we were getting them in trouble. They were pretty quiet about it. Again. It was the fighter pilot mentality. You know. I'll be darned if I'm going to cry uncle. I'm going to just keep trying to get this done. If they keep sending me a flight plan. I can't get it done. I'm just going to try again. That attitude. Of course, as we continued to press them, more mistakes began to be made, more than we had seen with the other crews. And then you begin to wonder, hmm, what's going on here? I think it might have been even a year or two later that I sat back, looked at the whole thing and said, you know, we really did something stupid. They did not cry uncle soon enough even though they had an absolutely valid reason for doing so. The control center had fouled up, and we just kept fouling up until we got them all fouled up too. In the end, of course, they turned out to be every bit as good as the other guys. They really turned out the stuff. But would not have you would not have believed that they were up there for nearly three months. It's funny, one of those guys, Ed Gibson, has since become a very good friend of mine and he and I have chatted about this off and on. He knows a lot about what went on there. It was clearly a case of the control center not recognizing that people needed some zero-G adjustment time before they could really be productive. There was just no point in pushing them early on because they weren't going to get the job done. We don't do that these days on the shuttle. We let them get really organized first. End quote. Air-to-ground communication also had an impact on public relations. Gibson recounted, quote, In an effort to increase our efficiency, We occasionally would have only one of us listening to the voice traffic from the ground and responding to it while the other two of us turned off our radios and worked without interruption. We each signed up for an orbit as the radio response guy. Well, one day we made a mistake and for a whole orbit we all had our radios off." Carr continued the story saying quote, when we came up to acquisition of signal over the sites the ground called us and we didn't answer them for a whole orbit. Regrettably that caused a lot of concern down on the ground and of course the press just thought that was wonderful. They said look at that. These testy crabby old astronauts up there won't even answer the radio now. They've turned it off and won't listen to the ground anymore. We've had to live under that stigma they falsely created ever since. End quote. Carr was, of course, referring to the much ballyhooed strike of the third crew, which was not a strike at all, just a communications mistake, but at least one journalist ran with the story without corroboration. And the crew has lived with the stigma ever since. NASA reviewed the entire incident years later and this was their findings. Begin excerpt. The first mention of the alleged strike appeared in the August thirtieth, 1976 issue of the New Yorker magazine in an article by journalist Henry S.F. Cooper entitled Life in a Space Station more than two years after the mission journalist Cooper wrote quote the third crew went on a sort of sit down strike one day about halfway through the mission that day Carr, Gibson and Pogue stopped working and did exactly what they felt doing end quote that same year, Cooper published a book titled, A House in Space. It's spanning on the magazine article. He reiterated the claim about the Skylab 4 strike using less ambiguous language. Quote, the third crew went on strike at the end of the sixth week. One day, Carr, Gibson, and Pogue Stopped working and did exactly what they felt like doing. End quote. He cited no sources in either the magazine or the book to support his claim. Then in 1980, the Harvard Business School developed a case study entitled Strike in Space, written by Michael B. McCaskey. And E. Mary Lou Baobacki. The case study opens with the sentence quote, On December 27, 1973, their third crew of Skylab space station turned off the radio and refused to talk to mission control. End quote. The authors did not provide a source for the actual date of the alleged strike or the part about the crew turning off the radio. In the end notes, the authors acknowledge that much of the material for this case is drawn from Cooper's 1976 book. In addition, they cited a dozen references to articles in the respected aerospace trade journal, Aviation Week, and Space Technology from October to December 1973, but surprisingly, none that covered the day of the alleged strike. Neither Cooper nor the authors of the Harvard Business School study interviewed the astronauts or any NASA personnel directly involved with the mission. In a review of the scholarly and public literature on the subject, It appears that all subsequent references to the alleged strike originate with these two sources. A review of the communications and the public address operator commentary transcripts from the time in question clearly demonstrates that on the days around the alleged strike, the astronauts were very busy. On December 25th, the crew celebrated Christmas. In the morning, Capcom Russell Swigert informed the crew that because of the station's ground tracking that day, they would be out of range of tracking stations for an entire orbit, or about 90 minutes. At the end of the silent orbit, the public affairs officer commented that Skylab is back after one revolution with no contact. A misunderstanding of this event may have led to the incorrect interpretation that the crew had turned off the station's radio. Carr and Poe conducted a seven-hour spacewalk to photograph Comet Kahootek and to replace film canisters in the Apollo telescope mount. After the spacewalk, Carr inventoried urine collection bags since it appeared that there was an insufficient quantity on board to complete critical metabolic experiments. At the end of the day, Capcom truly, jokingly called up to the crew, quote, hey, if you want to, I guess you can take tomorrow off, end quote. Referring to the planned off-duty day on December 26th, typical after a spacewalk. Carr replied, We'll have our answering service up tomorrow. This exchange may have led to confusion about the manner in which the crew took the day off. At the close of the day, the PAO commentary reiterated that the following day would be a day off for the crew, that mission control would allow the astronauts to sleep in and that they would conduct three hours of Apollo telescope mount observations. The next day, December 26th, was indeed the planned crew off-duty day, and mission control let the astronauts sleep an extra 30 minutes. The astronauts had leeway in what they did on their off-duty days. Gibson enjoyed observing the sun, and often conducted extra Apollo telescope-mounted sessions, which is what he did on this day. He and Pogue conducted several Earth observations, while Carr filmed examples of their onboard activities. All three conducted conferences with scientists on the ground in the fields of solar physics, Earth sciences, medical investigations, and other experiments, such as materials processing. According to the Harvard Business School case study, the next day, December 27th, was the day the astronauts went on strike. What actually took place aboard Skylab that day was quite different. The astronauts conducted medical tests, in particular assessing their cardiovascular systems using a bicycle ergometer and a lower body negative pressure device. They completed 7.5 hours of Apollo Telescope Mount observations as well as a conference with Apollo Telescope Mount scientists, photographed ground targets in the South Atlantic Ocean, Saudi Arabia, and coastal Peru, broadcast three TV transmissions including one showing comet Kahutek and carried out a material science experiment. Carr continued his fruitless search for the missing urine collection bags. At the end of the day, Carr sent a message to Mission Control asking for an assessment of the crew's performance up to that time with a request for a follow-up discussion. Some sources cite the next day, December twenty-eight, as the day of the strike. One reason may be that Cooper wrote that the strike occurred halfway through the mission and this day was the exact halfway point. The crew continued their cardiovascular assessments and added tests of their taste and smell. They completed more ATM sessions and held a conference with ATM scientists. In perhaps the highlight of the day, Professor Lupus Kahutek Discoverer of the comet that bore his name visited Mission Control Center in Houston and talked to the crew about their observations. A TV broadcast showed the astronauts during the dialogue while all three of their wives watched from the visitors gallery. Earth observations continued with photography of fires in Argentina, the Falklands Current a cyclone near Madagascar, and the Hawaiian Islands. The astronauts prepared for the mission's third spacewalk scheduled for the next day. At the end of the day, Capcom truly acknowledged receipt of Carr's request for an assessment of their performance. He informed the crew that flight controllers were preparing a response and would be ready to discuss it in the next day or two. Earlier in the day, as Skylab passed over the Tenerife Madagascar tracking station, a technical problem prevented a lock onto the station signal, with Capcom Swigert making several unsuccessful attempts to reach the crew. He informed the astronauts of the issue during the pass over the next tracking station. Perhaps this was another source for the claim that the crew turned off the radio and did not respond to the ground. End excerpt. Gibson recalled quote Problems that surfaced early in our mission were created by competent, well intentioned people. The exceptions were the dramatic stories fabricated by the media and later repeated and exaggerated in a book on Skylab and a Harvard Business School study. There was no strike in space by any stretch of the imagination. What could we have threatened to do? Go live on the moon? If any of these writers had gotten their information from just one of us, the crew or other people directly involved, responsible reporting and validity would have prevailed over expediency and sensationalism, End quote. The crew was finally able to take a much-needed day off and relieve some of the stress they were under, but taking a day off did not really change the situation. Carr recalled, quote, Right after our real day off, we got right back on the treadmill and things were not getting any better. Finally, after several weeks into the mission, it all came to a head. After dinner, we always had a medical conference with the flight surgeon where we would tell him how we were doing physically and we would give him the readings for the food that we would eaten and the water we would drunk and all other data they needed for the metabolic analysis. I said, you know, I think we need to have a stance here. I told him about our situation, that we weren't too terribly happy and that we were quite sure the ground wasn't happy either. It's time for us to have a discussion, a frank discussion. We can do it on this channel if they want. That request went down to the doctors. They passed the word and when the press got a hold of it, they raised Cain. So Mission Control came back and said, we're going to have to do it on an open circuit. I said, that's fine." End quote. Here's a clip of Jerry Carr explaining what happened many years later.
1: Well, we, we didn't feel like they were monitoring every move we made, but they set a schedule for us that we couldn't keep up with. And the, and the reason was that if, if you made a mistake, uh, you had to press on you couldn 't go back and fix it and do it right. You had to press on because the the schedule was so tight. They even had it scheduled when we could go to the bathroom because they were managing the, the time so so tightly and um, uh, that caused us a lot of trouble, a lot of anguish uh, as we you know haste makes waste, and when you hurry, hurry you you make mistakes, and then you end up having to do the experiment over again at some other time. Uh, that had a definite effect on our morale, and halfway through the mission we got it to a place where we said we, we really have to find a, a different way to do business because the way we're doing it right now is not being successful, our morale is, not, is suffering because of that, and we need to find an answer. So I sent a message down uh, on the medical channel to, to the people on the ground and told them we were having this trouble and that we thought we needed to talk about it. And I said, we can either talk about it on the medical channel or on the open channel, whichever you want. Well, the press immediately got wind of that and said, you can't keep it secret. So we, in front of the whole world, we had what I used to call the, the uh, world's first uh, uh, sensitivity session in space. Uh, we came in over Seattle and went out over uh, 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 northern part of Florida, Merritt Island. And during that uh, 12 to 14 minutes, uh, we poured our hearts out. I told them all the things that they were doing that were making us unhappy. They were ex- scheduling exercise after a heavy meal and, and doing this and doing that. And, and um, we told them all the things they were doing that were making us unhappy and that we, things we needed to change. Uh, then we went around the earth one more time and this time we came in over the same track only about 1,500 miles to the east. And uh, they had the opportunity to tell us everything we were doing to make their life miserable. <laughs> and we listened to that. And so then we uh, uh, went to bed, and the next morning uh, we talked again with them on the ground shortly and got a few messages up on our little teletype machine in which they proposed a total change in the way the schedule would be done. Um, from then on, they scheduled things only because they were tra- trajectory. Uh, uh, implicit that is something that had to be done at a precise point in the trajectory you just couldn't change that but everything else that didn't need to be done at a precise time such as housekeeping and clean up and that sort of thing was put on a shopping list and each of us got our shopping list every morning well that allowed us a lot more freedom of judgment a lot more freedom of action and it turned out that made us far more productive we made up all of the the, uh, uh, experiments that had not been completed and we actually got a few extra ones done uh, that, we, that were not even scheduled, things that we just made up. So it was a very classic example of the importance of um, uh, remembering that people living up in space are just like the people down on the Earth. You can, you can only work so fast for so long. The people on the Ford or the Vauxhall production lines can tell you just how fast that line can move. And if you move it any faster, things just go to hell. And if they go too slow, you don't get enough done. And it's the same thing in space. People can only work so fast for so long, and then they begin to break down or have problems, and things, things go badly. So uh, uh, we learned a lot about industrial engineering that we should have probably known before we ever left.
0: Some of the things the crew mentioned that were bothering them was they needed more time to rest, a schedule that was not quite so packed. They didn't want to exercise after a meal. They needed to get the pace of things under control. Mission Control said their problem with the crew was their rigidity that made it difficult for them to have the flexibility to schedule them how they needed to. The teletype the crew received the next morning was full of good recommendations. Mission Control would take all of the menial, routine housekeeping chores out of the schedule and put them on what they called a shopping list. These were things that needed to be done that day, but not at any particular time. Of course, they still had to strictly schedule those activities that had to be done at a specific time or a location in orbit. Mission Control also said They were not going to bother the crew anymore during meals or give them any major assignments after dinner. After dinner was relaxation time for the crew. Mission Control said the crew could do a few things like some student experiments but nothing major after dinner. By loosening the schedule, they significantly reduced the pressure. The crew was no longer rushing to complete tasks. It resolved the issue, and it worked wonderfully. NASA had learned, like Henry Ford probably learned on his assembly line, that the line can only go so fast before mistakes are made. The crew also felt that the extra time was necessary for creative thinking. As a result of having that extra time, they were all available who devised some experiments that they had wanted to do and put them on TV. Some of the findings are being used today in schools, such as short physics experiments and experiments with water in zero gravity. The loosening of the schedule really solved the problem. The crew was able to get the more important experiments done immediately or at a required time and everything else got done when they could fit it in. That flexibility gave them some control, and it proved their morale and increased their productivity. It was a win-win situation. Lead Flight Director Neil Hutchinson recalled, After the crew came back and we had gotten through the debriefing process, It was pretty obvious that we had some real scheduling and performance problems at the beginning of the flight. There have been a couple of books written that stated that there was a strike in space, even though that was clearly not the case. There is even a Harvard Business School case about it. If you get an MBA at Stanford or somewhere, you're likely to get the Harvard Business School case about Skylab 4. They talk about people's expectations and miscommunications as part of a management process. I don't know if it's a good example or not. I just look on it as a time when we just weren't thinking straight. We should have seen it, even though it was very insidious because the mistakes were little at first. Just every once in a while you kind of caught in somebody's tone of voice that he was irritated. It was not a good scene, but yes, good lessons were learned. End quote. Others also commented on the situation. Skylab 3 commander Alan Beans said that NASA's failure to change course after his mission was a major factor. Quote, I think Mission Control should have gone back to how they started with us. I believe that they started them out near where we ended rather than maybe 10-15% to 15% less. Kraft called Pete and me over to talk with him and his managers. I told them, Mission Control plans to lighten up on these guys, but they don't ever do it. They have to lighten up and let these guys catch their breath. Then finally, Jerry Carr said, We're not going to do this anymore because we can't. And he was right. They couldn't. We couldn't do it on day one, two, three, four, or five either," End quote. astronaut Bob Crippen, crew member of Smeat and Capcom for all three Skylab missions, said. Quote, "I can see how the situation developed over the course of the three missions. On Conrad's crew, most of the time was spent repairing Skylab, so that it would function, and we didn't really work that hard on the experiments." Then Bean and his crew went up and started off at a slow rate and then kind of built up speed and got more efficient and we accelerated after them. At the end of the mission, we on the ground were used to operating at about that pace. And then here comes the new crew, Jerry Carr and his guys, and we started scheduling things at the same rate that the last guys had ended up with. Part of what my job at Capcom was to try to sense what was going on. And truthfully, they were having some problems here and there. And we tried to scale back a little bit while we were doing scheduling at night. It was not until Jerry finally requested the conference to work things out that Mission Control really understood what was happening. It took that to hit us on the head. But that's also the job of the crew. Because when you're sitting on the ground and trying to communicate over the radio, it's hard to put yourself in their position in orbit. That's one of the responsibilities of the commander, to come back and say, hey, this doesn't work and that doesn't work. They have to tell us before we know really what's going on. The ground controllers, my flight director, Don Patty, and I were upset because we had not seen the problem coming on as big as it did and I had not appreciated the extent that it was actually affecting the crew. They just kept trying to make things work without telling us about their difficulties. Even though we initially got off on the wrong foot, Jerry, Bill, and Ed did super once we got things back on track. And no, there was no rebellion. I think the rest of the flight directors and Capcoms will certainly say the same thing. End quote. In summary, the crew's performance improved dramatically once the scheduling problems were resolved. They were no longer impeded by these issues, and they were able to complete all of the experiments that they needed to do, as well as a number of additional ones that they came up with. And although it was not obvious to everyone at the time, valuable progress had been made in advancing America's space operations experience. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 425 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Skylab 4, The Strike, Fake News. Our next episode should be released on or about Saturday, November 4th. If you would like to be notified by email, when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 243 are available on the archive podcast search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. You may have to put in the word "archive" to find the archive, though. Make sure you put that archive in. If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist, and you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. And you can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com/slash Space Rocket History. As usual, I have a few afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. Well, I must say that I agree wholeheartedly with Capcom Bob Crippen. The problem was mostly Mission Control's fault. They scheduled the astronauts too heavily, too soon. There wasn't enough time to get used to zero-g. They kind of expected them to just take off right where the uh, second crew left off. But this crew, and especially the commander, had the responsibility to tail the ground when they just couldn't continue at that pace. And the micromanaging wasn't working well either. Why did they wait, the crew, why did the crew wait or the, the commander wait until the middle of the mission? The only answer I can think of is pride. He was a fighter pilot and his crew could get the work done, he thought. And you know, he probably didn't want to appear as a complainer or a whiny to his peers. You don't want to be whiny. So <laughs> that's probably, that may be why he didn't do it sooner. But sometimes For the sake of your crew, you have to swallow your pride and talk it over with the ground when you got a big problem like that. You can't just keep going through it. He could have saved a lot of frustration had he spoken earlier. But that is just how I see it. It may have looked much different from space. So that's only my opinion. Your mileage may vary. But really... Isn't it a shame when fake news can mess up the reputation of an astronaut? You know, these these guys had to hear that strike thing a lot. You know, when they did appearances, I mean, it, it just keeps coming up. Now, we know this crew did not go on a strike. The NASA investigation and the eyewitness accounts plus the TV appearances pretty much prove it to me. But once a lie gets started, it is hard to stop its spread. I really feel sorry for the family of Bill Pogue when the New York Times prints in his obituary in 2014 calls him an astronaut who staged a strike in space. Why did they have to do that? And that was part of a headline. To me, that's just disgusting. Why do you want to do that to him? I don't understand. Finally, in personal news, my mother-in-law had her heart valve replacement surgery on Wednesday. She did well except for one complication with the femoral artery in her leg. So they had to take her back into surgery and fix that. But she is now doing well. The valve is working, doing well, doing what it's supposed to do. Her heart is functioning normally and she is recovering. She's still in the hospital mainly because of the complications she experienced. If it wasn't for that, she probably would have come home on Thursday. We are now expecting her to come home on Saturday. And of course, we are all very thankful on how well things went. Moving on to financial support. Over the past fortnight, we received seven new donations and pledges. I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Mars level. Wow. Peter H. from Australia donated at the Orion level and earned a shooting star emoji. Daniel S. from Kentucky sent in another donation and moved to the Mir ISS level. Paul K. from Wisconsin sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. Chris N. from the U.K. donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Ian B. from North Carolina increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. And Daniel N. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total donors, which uh, includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks for 2023 have reached 335, with an overall goal of 450 for this year. So, if you're enjoying the podcast that has been running now for over 10 and a half years without commercial interruption, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at Space Rocket History and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address space rocket history at gmail.com now is also a good time to begin the emoji maneuver now as we enter the end of the year you can quickly earn a longevity emoji next to your name on the donor's page the idea is to make a donation now and a donation in January for next year and earn a rocket emoji or advance to the next emoji in your collection in less than three months. Doesn't that sound great? I hope so. If you are unable to support financially, it would be helpful if you could retweet my post on Twitter, formerly actually now known as X, or repost my Facebook post, or... Write a good old five-star review on your podcatcher, like Spotify. I could use some on Spotify, I think. Cause I don't have many reviews there. Or iTunes, or it's Apple Music now, I guess. Or wherever you uh, listen to the podcast. Whatever platform you use, Post post a nice review, and that should help get the word out a little bit. And we would appreciate that. All right, now... Here's Mrs. S.R.H. with this episode's Donor Giveaway.
2: Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. I would like to express my immense and sincere gratitude for the thoughts and prayers you lifted up on behalf of my mom. It was a long day, and we are most thankful for the outcome. Okay, now for the winner. You know what it is. The winner will have the choice of the SRH archive magnet, or the regular magnet, or two stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected John Wainwright. John Wainwright, if you will, email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Tell us your address and your prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to you all.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA... Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt. Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Baylou. Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler. Flickr, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I will try to have episode 426 posted on or about November 4th. So long for now.